from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, March 26th. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. appeals to China for help restraining North Korea's nuclear ambitions. President Obama raised the issue with his Chinese counterpart today. And later, why Beijing is pushing China's restaurants to clean up their English-language menus. Hunan sautéed bullfrog in sauce deep and clean, fish head bubble cake, fresh flower spice plant fertilizer cattle, Mountain City saliva chicken, and nine-curve fertilizing intestines. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, presenting Murdoch's Scandal. The powerful media mogul's reputation, future, and dynasty are in peril, resulting from business practices in his media empire. Tuesday, March 27th at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama today urged China to do more to restrain North Korea's nuclear activities. Obama discussed the matter with his Chinese counterpart, Hu Jintao, in the South Korean capital, Seoul. Both are there to attend a nuclear security summit that's been overshadowed by North Korea's plans to launch a satellite next month. Miles Pomper of the Monterey Institute Center for Nonproliferation Studies is in Seoul for the summit. He says the launch has the U.S. and its allies worried. It's not the satellite itself that's a concern in the West. It's that basically, um, I think it was John F. Kennedy that once said that the only difference between uh, missiles and rockets is attitude. Once you've got uh, the technology to uh, launch space vehicles successfully and launch satellites, you're basically uh, have the same technology that's used for long-range missiles. Mm. So President Obama has appealed uh, to China for help. What's China saying? What can China do? Well, I mean, China is North Korea's main supporter right now, and basically the people who supply North Korea with its food and fuel and so on. And so they have some leverage over uh, North Korea, uh, but they also have their own concerns. They don't want to uh, undermine North Korea's security so much that provokes a refugee crisis or eliminates what they see as a buffer zone with South Korea and with South Korea's ally, the United States. So President Obama had promised to make nonproliferation and denuclearization a priority of his administration when he came into office, kind of his signature, if you will. Where does this conference stand in relationship to uh, President Obama's goals? Well, I mean, this conference, as you said, is particularly dedicated to the goal of securing all vulnerable fissile materials by the end of 2013. And this is supposed to be sort of a halfway mark to judge how much progress has been made. Uh, The unfortunate thing is that the way the administration has handled this, there's no um, benchmarks for judging whether that goal has been accomplished. There's no international standards right now on what it will mean to secure all materials or what you would define as vulnerable. So they're basically um, not going to be able to tell whether they've achieved that goal or not. And I would say that in the opinion of most experts, they're not going to achieve that goal. So, Miles, you follow nuclear proliferation around the globe. And and as you know, uh, North Korea has nukes. They say they have nukes. Iran doesn't have nukes. They say they want nukes. Which is the more dangerous of the two countries? 
Uh, I would say Iran is more dangerous uh, just because fundamentally, you know, North Korea is in kind of a, de- a much more of a defensive position in the sense that this is what's holding their regime together, both internally and externally. And it's unlikely that they're going to, you know, carry out an aggressive military action. I mean, I do worry about them potentially transferring material, which they've shown a propensity to do, whether it's missiles or whole nuclear power plants. Uh, the Iranians um, worried about some extent their willingness to transfer it to terrorists, given their long-standing relationship with terrorists, and the fact that if they move forward with a nuclear program, you're going to have some big effects with throughout the region. Other countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey could potentially feel that they need to move forward with their nuclear programs, uh, nuclear weapons programs too. Um, Miles, just as a final question, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on uh, President Obama uh, on an open microphone, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, told Russia's leader Dmitry Medvedev that uh, Obama will be able to be more flexible on contentious issues like missile defense after the U.S. presidential elections in November. Uh, What are your thoughts on that uh, unusually frank comment? Well, I think that's, that's, I'm sure that's accurate uh, in terms of I guess the greatest sin in, in Washington is usually candor. And uh, I don't think it's any secret that um, the issue of missile defense and all these other issues are certainly going to be contentious ones in the presidential election. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't think the president has, you know, given the likely makeup of the Senate and so on after the election, I'm not sure he's going to have much more flexibility than he has right now. Because if you looked at the vote on the uh, New START treaty, there were a lot of restrictions put in there on missile defense, and that was not during an election year. Miles mm. Pomper, a senior research associate with the Monterey Institute Center for Nonproliferation Studies. He's in Seoul, South Korea, for the Summit on International Nuclear Security. Miles, thanks a lot. Thank you. As we just heard, Iran's nuclear potential has many countries in the Middle East worried, none more so than Israel. The Israeli press has been buzzing with speculation about an imminent preemptive attack against Iran's nuclear facilities. That's led one Israeli couple to launch a unique anti-war protest. It started with some photos on Facebook, but as the world's Matthew Bell reports, it's turned into something bigger. An Israeli graphic designer from Tel Aviv says he didn't plan on launching an anti-war campaign. It's just that one thing led to another. Hi, I'm Ronnie. I'm 41 years old. I'm a father. I'm a graphic designer. I'm a teacher. I'm a citizen of Israel, and I need your help. Roni Edry says it all started with a poster he designed and posted on Facebook a little over a week ago. It was a picture of him holding his five-year-old daughter with an Israeli flag in her hand and then the words, Iranians, we will never bomb your country. We love you. You know, at the beginning, the, the response were like negative. Edry says people were put off by him appearing to speak for all Israelis, but that's not what he was trying to do, he says. And anyway, soon enough, a flood of positive responses began and hasn't stopped. Edry is standing with his second child on his hip. They're on a busy pedestrian path in central Tel Aviv doing another video for this online anti-war campaign that got started with a simple, even naive question. What about just talk to the other side and check with him, like, you sure we're going to do this? And the craziest thing on earth happened. The guy respond and they say, we don't know, we, we don't want to do it either. That was the message you got back from Iranians? Yeah, it's crazy. We got hundreds, thousands of messages from, from Iran, but also from all over the world now, 
basically saying, dude, yes, nobody wants it. Do you think that people doing something like this could prevent a war? I hope so. I, I, you know, you were asking me four days ago, I will tell you no, but now it's like, it's so refreshing, you know, just to say, I love you, I, have, I don't want war with you. So maybe change the minds. Israelis are not of one mind when it comes to the question of using military force against Iran's nuclear program. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has talked about it in terms of preventing another holocaust. But some prominent Israelis, including high-level former intelligence officials, are against a unilateral Israeli attack. They warn it could set off a dangerous regional conflict. The public is divided, too. One new poll found 60% of respondents saying they believed only military action could stop Iran's nuclear progress. But in another survey of Jewish Israelis, 60% said they opposed an Israeli attack without U.S. cooperation. In such a contentious atmosphere and with the stakes so high, an anti-war campaign on Facebook and YouTube is not likely to be a game-changer, says Mayir Javadanfar. He's an Iranian-born Israeli citizen and an Iran expert based in Tel Aviv. But Javadanfar has followed the campaign and applauds what Edri and his colleagues are doing. I think these guys show that, you know, we have a lot of intelligent people in Israel who don't accept everything at face value. They, much like other Israelis, don't want a nuclear Iran or against the regime's policies towards Israel, but don't want to make 73 millions of enemies in Iran. They want to make 73 millions of friends in Iran. Besides, Javadanfar says the last thing the Iranian regime wants is for its public to begin to question three decades of propaganda that has demonized Israelis. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Tel Aviv. Some of you listeners may have maxed out your credit cards before, but doubtful it's ever happened the way it's happened to some shoppers in Brazil. Over the weekend, police in Sao Paulo, Brazil, arrested three members of what's been dubbed the Gang of Blondes. Officials say this gang of fair-haired women had been kidnapping female shoppers in Sao Paulo and in Rio de Janeiro for years. The victims would have their credit cards maxed out and their bank accounts drained at the ATM. The BBC's Gerardo Lissardi has been following the case. Uh, Gerardo, what do police know about this gang? Well, Marco, I just spoke with Sao Paulo anti-kidnap division chief Joaquin Diaz-Alves. He believes the gang was composed mostly by blonde, young, middle-class and educated women. He says that all of them lived a double life, acting as normal people while being part of a criminal organization that carried at least uh, 50 kidnappings. And so why uh, was this apparently a middle-class and educated group of women doing this? They were just picking up victims in the shopping centers just to buy things, as much things as they could. The, the, the police is still trying to figure out what happened with the things they bought. And what kind of things did they buy? Mostly there were electronics, you know, such as iPads or uh, intelligent telephones. But sometimes they also used the stolen cars to take cash or even to buy luxury clothes. In one occasion, he said that uh, they bought... 17,000 reales, equivalent of $9,000 worth of electronics with the credit card of only one victim. So, Gerardo, can you walk us through just how uh, this gang of blondes would kind of carry out an operation? They'd go into a mall, they'd kidnap a woman, then what? According to the investigator, Alves, the gang basically targets wealthy women in the shopping centers and supermarkets. 
they prefer also women that were physically similar to one of the members of the gang in order to assume their identity while shopping. And they uh, hold them uh, against their will with a gun or a knife in, in their car, and then what, they take their cards and go shopping? Well, yes, with a gun, and they get them in their own cars. They threatened and mistreated the victims, according to the police investigator. They had experience in this kind of thing since they had been into the business of express kidnapping for about three years. And express because I assume that they probably weren't held against their will too long, just long enough to max out the credit card. Yes, and this is something very common in Latin America, in Brazil, and in the region. Actually, the investigator told me that they are trying to figure out if the gang had criminal activities in other countries of the region. Up to the moment, the police already arrested three suspects, two women, one of them blonde and the other dark-haired, and one man who they believed helped to secure the kidnappings. But the investigator told me that they are looking for at least four more blondes believed to be part of the gang. Yeah, I noticed you said, Gerardo, that one of the women was not blonde. Uh, are, are they all really blonde? Because I saw the pictures and their eyebrows uh, kind of give away some dye jobs. Well, yes, maybe maybe there is not a, a natural blonde, but at least five of the members that the police is looking for or, had, or has already in prison, they were blondes. They looked like blondes. And uh, the other one, as I told you, is dark-haired. Uh, yes. And they apparently what the police investigator told me is that they were very charming, you know, and they used this charm as a weapon, you know, to just to confuse the employees of the, the place where they used to buy things. The BBC Gerardo Lissardi in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Marco. We've got mugshots of the so-called Gang of Blondes. You can judge for yourself. They're at theworld.org. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. When Russia was bidding for the Winter Olympics back in 2007, President Vladimir Putin took the unusual step of addressing the International Olympic Committee in English. Russia is ready to host the Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2014. The Olympic family is going to feel at home in Sochi. A lot's happened in the past five years. Putin was just elected president again, and the Black Sea Resort of Sochi is barreling ahead on construction for the 2014 Olympics. Putin called the Games a dream for Russians, but as Julia Barton reports from Sochi, it's becoming a nightmare for some residents there. Katya Davidenko sits with a group of students who study English at a college in Sochi. She says she's excited for the day when thousands of athletes and spectators from around the world will descend on her hometown. 
You know, uh, before Olympic Games were announced, I felt like I will leave this city and go and live in somewhere, somewhere else. But now when I see what's happening here, I obviously will stay here. But not all the students share Davidenko's enthusiasm. Diana Kozlova recently got married, but says rents are going up now, and she can't afford to start a family. The local people in Sochi can't live here because... Uh, uh, life in Sochi is very expensive, very expensive. Whether Sochi is getting better or worse as a result of the Olympics, one thing is certain. This once sleepy resort town will never be the same. Almost every corner of Sochi now bears the marks of massive construction. New hotels and condos sprout from the hillsides. The government is building new highways and some 30 miles of light rail. The construction requires multiple tunnels through solid rock. Sochi's facelift has officially cost the Russian government at least $10 billion. And state-controlled companies like Gazprom have spent billions more constructing hotels and resorts in the area. Russia has pledged that Sochi 2014 will be the greenest Olympics yet. But the environmental groups Greenpeace and World Wildlife Fund have already pulled out of an agreement to monitor the construction. They say the government largely ignored their recommendations. They're especially concerned about unofficial dumps springing up in Sochi. Tatiana Skiba lives in the hills above the new Olympic ice skating and hockey arenas. One night last April, she and her neighbors were awoken by a terrible noise. Their houses shook as if in an earthquake. In fact, it was a landslide. Skiba's house was knocked off its foundations. The city gave the community some money to build new homes, but those houses have started sinking at strange angles. The ground is still moving, and residents now blame a large dump up the hill. They say trucks bring loads of concrete rubble there every day. City officials say there's no connection between that and the sinking of their homes, but Sochi has seen an increase in landslides since Olympic construction began. Meanwhile, Skiba and her neighbors are stuck here, in their tilted houses above the gleaming Olympic Park. We have this joke among us on the street, she says. By the time the Olympics start, we won't have to buy tickets. We'll have already slid down there. At least Skiba still lives in her old neighborhood. About a thousand Sochi families have had to move because of the Olympics. That number of evictions is small compared with other places that have hosted recent mega sports events. The UN Human Rights Council found that the 2008 Beijing Olympics prompted at least 6,000 evictions. In a statement, the International Olympic Committee writes that it takes the issue of relocation very seriously. Quote, a certain number of relocations have been necessary for the construction of Olympic venues, and Sochi 2014 and the government has assured us that people are being fairly compensated in line with Russian law. While the IOC says they've met with some of the displaced families in Sochi, they have not spoken with one man who's been in a standoff with authorities. My name is Alexei. My surname is Kravets. Uh, house is number 65 and flat is number 6. Alexei Kravets has been living in one room of his house on the Black Sea coast. He's been without water, gas, or electricity for five months since the city demolished the rest of his neighborhood to make way for a new rail yard. His cinder block house is surrounded by mud and rubble, and he's painted slogans like IOC Help and SOS in red on all the windows. 
In the evening, a backhoe comes up to the house and starts to scrape the concrete, just to pressure me psychologically, Kravyat says. If I left the place for like 15 minutes, they'd tear it down right away. Kravyat says the backhoes have damaged the walls, and he's afraid the house could collapse on him. He's refused the government's offer of an apartment three miles from the coast. He's a lawyer, and he's appealed to Russian and European courts for help, but has gotten no ruling. We never asked for anything from the state, Kravyat says. We built the house all by ourselves, and now the state is taking it away from us. Kravyats pulls out a small laptop and shows a video he made. Recently, he put some of his belongings into a metal storage unit behind his house, hoping to save them from demolition. Construction workers immediately showed up with a crane to take the unit away. Where do you work, Kravets demands of the supervisor. Where are your orders to remove my things? We're building the Olympic facilities, the man says. Kravets again asks for court papers. The man brushes him off. It's a government decision, the man says. For The World, I'm Julia Barton, Sochi. When Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics in 2008, there was an effort to improve the English translations of street signs. Now authorities in Beijing are launching what they call another linguistic rectification campaign, this one to fight the often too literal translations in restaurant menus. It's called Enjoy Culinary Delights, a Chinese menu in English. It contains recommended translations for more than 2,000 of China's most popular dishes. That's a reporter on Chinese state TV. And if restaurants do adopt these suggested changes, it might make things easier for some foreign visitors. It would make things a little less terrifying, but also a little less comical. Here's tour operator Joe Sinisi with some selections from the English menu at a Beijing restaurant. Okay, so we have chafing dish hair belly. Hunan sautéed bullfrog in sauce deep and clean, fish head bubble cake, fresh flower spice plant fertilizer cattle, smooth liver is pounded, and two of my favorites, Mountain City saliva chicken and nine-curve fertilizing intestines. And I'll have a double helping of the saliva chicken, please. We might want to blame all of this on web-based translations, but Joe Sinisi says that's not always the case. Well, China has you know, a very rich cuisine and a lot of regional cuisines, and they have names that make sense to them, just like in English, like chicken fried steak might not translate very well. Their translations actually make sense. So if you look at what you'll commonly see, the saliva chicken, um, the name of the dish is koshuiji, which literally means a mouthwater chicken. So they're trying to say it's so delicious it makes your mouth water. Unfortunately, in English, the translation saliva makes you think someone in the back of the kitchen was spitting in your food. So it may be good buy saliva chicken, gross noodle, and husband and wife lung slice, and hello appetizing, if slightly less exciting, not to mention entertaining fare. We have more adventures in language butchering in our weekly podcast on language, The World in Words. This week, Libyan militiamen confuse Welsh with Hebrew, which means trouble for a couple of journalists. Just go to theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, why the wife of detained American Alan Gross is paying close attention to the Pope's visit to Cuba. We're hoping that the Pope can urge Castro to release Alan on humanitarian grounds. It's not political, it's humanitarian. And later, why Senegal's election gives hope to all of Africa. 
ERI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Pope Benedict XVI has landed in Cuba. It's his first visit to the communist-run island. Pope John Paul II was there 14 years ago when he met with then-President Fidel Castro. Some things have changed slowly in Cuba since then, but a lot hasn't. And many, both in Cuba and outside the country, are hoping Pope Benedict pushes Cuban leaders for more change during his visit. Monica Campbell reports from Havana. There's a grand debate going on now in Cuba over just what the Pope's visit might accomplish, spiritually and politically. Yanis Letty, a young mom who lives in downtown Havana, said there's no question it will be a boost to the nation, regardless of one's faith. This trip to Cuba helps to unite us, ourselves, more. There are those who are religious and those who aren't. And the hope is that he'll bring people together to care for one another, independent of politics or religion. So much has changed with both politics and religion since the first papal visit to Cuba 14 years ago of Pope John Paul II. As a result of that trip, then-President Fidel Castro lifted religious restrictions that had been in place since the 1959 revolution. Batista said she's excited to take her young son to see the Pope's Mass this Wednesday and feel free to do so. He's the Pope. He represents, wow, like God on earth. On Sunday, at the Santa Rita Church in Havana's Miramar neighborhood, Father Jose Perez spoke about the Pope's visit. Perez also stayed away from politics. He stressed that the overall meaning of the Pope's visit is to present Christ to the world. After the Mass, though, one group of women, activists known as Ladies in White, took a far more aggressive tone. The women, some of whom are relatives of political prisoners, hold their now customary protest march from the Santa Rita Church down a large Havana street. They're unique in Cuba for regularly and openly criticizing the communist regime for abusing human rights. Under the shade of a large ceiba tree, protest leader Bertha Soler spoke to foreign reporters and called for the release of jailed political dissidents in Cuba. The press was also anxious to see whether, as usual, pro-government crowds would turn up and harass the women. In eastern Cuba, the activists claimed that 18 of their members were recently detained. But in Havana, the march went peacefully. In one of Havana's poor neighborhoods, people were far more muted about the Pope's visit, though not entirely apolitical. Roberto, who only gave his first name, is an auto mechanic, thin and underemployed. He picked up some extra work on Sunday and said he'd spend his pay on milk for his two children. Regarding the Pope's visit, he said, It doesn't matter to me whether he comes or not, because for us, for the poor people here, we don't receive anything from the Pope. He said that the Pope's visit will do more to benefit the Cuban government to let the world know that it tolerates religious freedom 
and the church's critical view. And while Roberto was more open than he might have been in the past, he cut the interview off, saying it's not good to talk about how we live here. Even before touching down on Cuban soil, Pope Benedict made headlines stating that Marxism no longer corresponds to reality. To that, President Raul Castro's foreign minister, Bruno Rodriguez, offered the brief response that Cuba would, quote, listen respectfully to the pontiff. Whether the pope will repeat his words directly to Castro this week is unknown. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Havana, Cuba. One American woman is hoping that Cuban leaders will listen to the pontiff. She's been asking the Vatican to intercede on behalf of her husband, an American contractor named Alan Gross, who's been imprisoned in Cuba for more than two years. Eric Neeler has a story from Washington. Judy Gross has been through a lot over the past 28 months. Her 27-year-old daughter is battling breast cancer. Her mother-in-law was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And her husband of more than 40 years, Alan, was arrested, charged, and convicted of espionage in Cuba. There are some days when I literally drag myself out of bed and put one foot in front of the other, go to work. Then I have days where I'm really depressed and I just feel very hopeless. Since her husband's arrest in 2009, Gross sold her suburban home in Maryland and moved to a small apartment in Washington, D.C. She says work helps relieve her stress. So do the 15-minute phone calls she receives every Friday from a military hospital outside Havana where her husband is serving his 15-year sentence. The calls are monitored. So the couple has devised ways of transmitting information about efforts to win his freedom. I keep saying... We're working hard. Lots of things are happening. And he says, are there coals in the fire? You know, that's his expression. And I, always, you know, I try to say, there are a lot of coals in the fire this week, Alan, or not so much. Alan Gross went to Cuba on a contract from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Agency officials were running a $20 million program to expand Internet access for Cuba's Jewish community. The contract went through a private company, Development Alternatives Incorporated, based in Bethesda. Judy Gross says it was a dream job for her husband. He loved the Cuban people, he loved the country of Cuba, and then he loved the Jewish community. It was like, what could be more perfect for him? Judy Gross says neither DAI nor the USAID made it clear the kinds of risks he faced in Cuba. Alan would not have gone to Cuba if he thought this would happen. He would have never put his family at risk. He would have never done that. In 2009, Alan Gross made five trips to Cuba, installing wireless hotspots in Jewish synagogues. The Associated Press recently reported that during these visits, Gross brought in satellite communications devices, cell phones, Wi-Fi equipment, and a special encrypted chip to keep transmissions from being monitored by Cuban authorities. These activities are illegal under Cuban law. The AP report also said Gross told Cuban officials that he was working as a member of a Jewish relief group, rather than on a U.S. government contract. Fulton Armstrong is a former staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he investigated Gross's case. This is a very sincere man who's done good deeds through most of his life. He doesn't speak Spanish. He doesn't have counterintelligence training, but he was put into a situation where he was doing very clandestine and very covert operations, wholly unprepared. During his trial in March 2011, Gross testified that he had been duped by U.S. authorities and apologized to the court. The Obama administration has since urged Cuban authorities to release Gross as a humanitarian gesture. 
Gross's family hopes to tie his release to the case of René Gonzalez, a Cuban convicted here of espionage and currently out on probation in Miami. A U.S. judge has agreed to let Gonzalez visit his brother in Cuba, who is also dying of cancer. But U.S. officials oppose letting Gonzalez go home. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton took a hard line during testimony on Capitol Hill last month. So we have not had any uh, success in our, our diplomacy. We'd like to see Mr. Gross home, uh, but we have made no deals. We've offered no concessions, and, and we don't intend to do so. Since his arrest, Alan Gross has lost more than 100 pounds, and he suffers from bouts of arthritis. Judy Gross says she's angry the administration isn't doing more to bargain with the Cuban government and get her husband out of jail. Well, first of all, I have to say it's pretty strange that they're not doing that. I'm furious that nobody has come to his rescue. I mean, his company, um, he was working on a U.S. America, USAID contract. Given the stalemate, Judy Gross and her attorney have turned to the Vatican for help. We're hoping that the Pope can urge Castro to release Allen on humanitarian grounds. It's not political, it's humanitarian. The Pope and Cuban President Raul Castro were scheduled to meet later this week in Havana. For The World, I'm Eric Kneeler. There's a Cuban connection in today's GeoQuiz, but the answer lies in Western Ireland. Irish city we want you to name has a historical link to Latin American revolutionary Che Guevara. He helped lead the Cuban Revolution, of course, but he hailed from Argentina. And some of his family roots can be traced back to this Irish city that looks out on the Atlantic. So the local city council has approved a proposal to build a statue in honor of El Che. It would sit along a scenic path called the Salt Hill Promenade. That's a place where it's becoming a tr- where it's become a tradition on Christmas Day to jump off the Black Rock diving tower into the sea. But back to Che. He's a controversial figure, and so is the proposed monument. Some locals are aghast at the plan, and so are some politicians in the U.S. It's up to you now to name the Irish city at the heart of this controversy, but you got to do it quickly. Count to five for the answer. Correspondent Lorna Siggins of the Irish Times is in the city of Galway, Ireland, which is the answer to our quiz today. Uh, Lorna, first of all, thanks for joining us. The statue of Che in Ireland seems a long way off from Cuba. What is the historical link between Che and Ireland? Well, the historical link is that Ernesto Che Guevara de la Serna, that's uh, Che's father, was related to the lynches of Galway. His grandmother was descended from one of the Lynch family of Galway uh, who emigrated to Argentina in the mid-18th century. And Guevara himself had uh, often referred to his grandmother's Irish roots, and he actually talked about it with an Irish artist during a brief stopover at Shannon Airport in County Clare in Ireland in 1968. And did he attribute any of his revolutionary uh, ideals uh, to uh, his Irish ancestry? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he couldn't have got them from anywhere else. (laughs) And um, Fitzpatrick, of course, was very taken with with Che Guevara, and he went on to uh, create the iconic image of Guevara, which appears on millions of T-shirts all over the world. This was an adaptation of the um, Alberta Corda photograph of Guevara. 
So Fitzpatrick, an Irish artist, has been very closely associated with Guevara since then. And he's one of the two people who's actually behind the design of this monument in Galway that's causing so much controversy now. And where is this proposed statue going to be erected in Galway? It's more of a a piece of art now, it seems, than a statue, because this is going to be a sort of a 21st century image with sort of three sheets of glass with the image of Che Guevara on it. And it's going to be all of five metres high. And the proposed location is on the Salt Hill Promenade, which is just um, several miles outside of uh, Galway city centre. It's a very popular promenade along the north shore of Galway Bay. It looks out over the Burren and County Clare and out over the Atlantic and and over the Aran Islands. So the location is is proposed for this very, very popular location. So the proposal has been around for about a year, uh, Lorna. Why is it just now getting slammed as controversial? It flared up about a month ago when an Irish businessman who has American business links, a man called Declan Ganley, Declan Ganley issued this statement at the end of February where he said that he had just very recently heard about this plan for Galway and that he considered it to be a monument to a mass murderer. He felt that it would be very damaging. He said it would cast a shadow on Galway's international reputation and he said it would damage investments. There's quite a lot of U.S. multinational investment in Galway. And he issued this very strong statement where he said that it would be similar to a putting up a monument to Stalin or to Paul Pot or to Idiot Min or to Oliver Cromwell. I mean, he's not the only one uh, who feels that way. Apparently, some locals in Galway also feel the same. But the latest critique comes from U.S. Congresswoman Ileana Ross Leighton, who says Che Guevara was a ruthless killer who should not be idealized. Instead of honoring a killer, the city council of Galway should honor the victims of Che and the Castro dictatorship by rejecting this proposal. So, uh, Lorna Siggins, will the city council of Galway take Ms. Ross Leighton in seriously, as well as uh, Declan Ganley? Yeah, the mayor of Galway, Hildegard Nocton, who had originally voted in favor of the proposal, announced that she had changed her mind and that she didn't feel what she had voted for was what was now planned and that as a Democrat she couldn't support it. She said that she didn't agree with the ideology that Che Guevara pursued and represented. Now, at the same time, the City Council has voted in favour of this. She can't reverse the vote. So the councillor who first proposed the idea has said that he feels there should be a rational and open debate about the issue. That's where it's at at the moment. Seems like this whole issue has gone rather high up on the totem pole for discussion. Absolutely. Um, it, it was interesting that Ileana Ross Leighton issued her statement just several days after Declan Ganley's statement. Mm. And um, Billy Cameron just felt that um, when he responded to these statements by saying that he, he felt that um, perhaps Mr. Ganley's uh, American business links were all based in Miami and that they were, you know, people with very strong affiliations to uh, the former Cuba in Miami. Billy Cameron is the councillor who proposed this originally. Yeah. That said, he said he didn't want to get into a public spat about it and that it was best to have a, you know, a, a, an open debate about the monument in Galway. It is amazing how Che Guevara still provokes controversy uh, years after his death. Absolutely. But there will be people in Galway also who just see this as, as, a, as, a, as a very good opportunity once again to put Galway on the map. And if there's a bit of controversy about it, then all the better. Well, Lorna, thanks for putting Galway on our little map today. Appreciate it. Great, yeah. Lorna Siggins with the Irish Times. Much obliged. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
We're putting three more places on the map, courtesy of our geotexting game winners. They are Kate in Lake Balboa, California, Ian in Atlanta, Georgia, and Lindsay in Leewood, Kansas. They all came up with Galway. To try your luck next time, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The African nation of Senegal is being praised today as a regional beacon of democracy. This after Senegal's runoff presidential election was decided smoothly and quickly over the weekend. Voters chose challenger Maki Sall over longtime incumbent Abdoulaye Wad. And Wad wasted no time to concede on election night, even as many worried he might not. President Obama said that makes Senegal a leading example of good governance and democracy at work. The president of France says it's a reason for hope for all Africa. Abdou Kadrelo is a political analyst. He joins us from Dakar, the capital of Senegal. So uh, just what is the mood today in Senegal? I mean, how overjoyed are people? Well, the fact that the process went very well, Senegalese people are quite proud, actually. I, I went throughout the streets of Dakar yesterday to I witness myself the situation and the joy of the youngsters. And yes, people were cheering, chanting, showing Senegalese flags everywhere. Now, you mentioned the young people, the young Senegalese. Uh, Macky Sall, the man who won this election yesterday, he's the first African leader who was born after colonialism in 1960. How significant is that to young Senegalese who, you know, really felt disenfranchised with politics? Well, I mean, that's one of his major assets. Because on one hand, you had somebody who is almost 90 years old and another one who was, who was born in 1961, I mean, one year after the independence. And if you consider the Senegalese population, the general population of Senegal is 60% under 20 years old. Do you understand? 60% mm. is under 20. So that probably made a difference for younger generation of this country than wanted to have their voice heard. Now, some people say, though, that Macky Sall, even though he's 50 years old, uh, you know, some 35 years, uh, Abdoulaye Wads Jr., he was Abdoulaye Wad's prime minister at one point, and Abdoulaye Wad said, Macky Sall was my best student. Will there be a big difference between Wad and Sall? Well, Macky Sall is a creature of Abdoulaye Wad, to be frank. I mean, he occupied all the positions possible in Wad's regime. He was a minister of state, so he owed everything he had to Abdoulaye Wad. And the difference is Macky Sall being younger is going to be much more humble with the way he will rule the country. He is much more open-minded because you have two different types of Senegalese people uh, with two different expectations. The first one is a group of intellectuals, of the elite, you know, who expect from him to reorganize the whole institutions by respecting the separation of powers between the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive, uh, who expect from him good governance, transparency, equity in the justice. And on the other hand, you have the average Senegalese people who just expect from him to lower the prices of the goods, the rice, the sugar, the oil, etc., etc. So he will have to answer to those two different types of demands. Political analyst Abdul Lowe speaking with us from Dakar. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. For a sampling of reactions to the peaceful handover of power in Senegal, check out my blog post today. You can find it, plus all our Senegal election coverage, at theworld.org. Finally today, the Japanese band L'Arc-en-Ciel played in New York last night. The band's name is French for The Rainbow. 
Why French? Well, there was already an English rock band with the name Rainbow. Anyway, this band is from Japan. They've got a lot of fans here, and the world's Alex Galifant met them. I don't interview many rock stars, not really used to the circus that goes on around them. We were in a giant hotel suite. Photographers and stylists were milling about, sipping strawberry ice water, and there were lots of sunglasses. Now, don't get me wrong, this wasn't Spinal Tap. Lark on Seal isn't a joke band. They're a huge deal in Japan, and I know how that sounds. Big in Japan usually means not big here. But the tickets for their show in New York were selling fast. <laughs> and as the bassist Tetsuya told me, they were worried that their venue would be too small. So they decided to move to the bigger stage. That stage was uh, Madison Square Garden, one of the most storied arenas in rock history. Larkon Ciel's been around since 1991 in various configurations. Tetsuya was there at the start, along with the singer Hyde. Over the years, the band's been through breakups and scandals. One member quit after being arrested for possessing heroin. He was a drummer. They're now on their third. But through it all, they've built a huge following, and not just in Japan. Tetsuya remembers that when Larkon Seal first performed in the US back in 2004, about 10,000 people showed up, and the band was surprised at the level of support. But maybe it was to be expected. That gig was at a Baltimore anime convention. Anime is one of those Japanese cultural exports that's become more and more popular in the United States in recent years. This is the singer, Hyde. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that our songs were featured as themes to anime shows, and that really gave us exposure to those fans. But however they got to know us, what matters is that they continue to appreciate our music in the future. Now, Larkon Seal doesn't want to be thought of as the anime band. And who can blame them? Their music isn't all about doing soundtracks for animation. In fact, over the years, they've run the gamut of musical styles, so much so that asking them to pick a couple of songs that capture the essence of the band doesn't get very far. Larkon Seal means rainbow, remember. Lots of colors, lots of musical styles. Hyde and Tetsuya are Japanese rock stars, no doubt about it. But I get the feeling rock star rules are the same everywhere. Tetsuya's wearing silk boxer shorts over a pair of leathery skin tight pants. He can. No one bats an eyelid. Not the hotel staff, not the translator, no one. And Hyde's just been shopping on Fifth Avenue. Boshi, I bought a hat. Oh, from where? What kind of hat? You got a top hat. Top hat? Do you know? Yeah, it's like slash. Ah, so, 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 like a. Hard to find a hat like this in Japan, so whenever I come to America, I buy a couple of these. 
Rock star is such a great term, says Tetsuya. I have nothing bad to say about it. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, New York. Check out a music video of L'Arc-en-Ciel in rock star attire, sans top hat at theworld.org. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.